Hey everyone and welcome back to your Linux and open source weekly podcast. I'm your host Nick and this is a show where we discuss everything that happened in the Linux, the open source, the privacy and the open web space every week. So this time we have Mozilla announcing layoffs as they change CEO temporarily because apparently the new CEO won't stick around for a long while but she has already restructured Mozilla and they want to refocus on Firefox which means other products are taking a hit. We also have the alpha for the cosmic desktop coming way closer and bringing their own file manager into the fold. We have India moving to ban Proton Mail after fake bomb threats were sent using this email service. We have the servo engine for Firefox being resurrected by Igalia. We have Ubuntu making some more moves on the desktop. We have an implementation of CUDA for AMD GPUs and a lot more. So as always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, all the links that I use to make this show are available in the show notes. If you want to support the show, you also have plenty of links in the show notes as well. And if you become a Patreon member or a YouTube member starting at $1 per month, you will get access to a daily Linux and open source news show where you get basically everything that you get in this weekly show, but in daily format from Monday to Friday. So check that out if you're interested. And now let's get started. So, first let's talk about Mozilla. They announced that they would reduce their workforce as they scale back development on certain products. If you don't know, they recently changed CEOs. Mitchell Baker is now out, replaced by Laura Chambers, who apparently will not stick around for very long. She's more of an interim CEO while they find someone else. But the focus for Mozilla is now on their core products like Firefox or Thunderbird, which is handled by a Mozilla subsidiary, but still kind of a Mozilla product nowadays. And they also want to bring new products to market, but first they want to focus on Firefox. And as a result, the other products will definitely lose uh, some workforce. So 60 employees will lose their job at Mozilla, and that's around 5% of the total workforce. Uh, the projects affected by this are, interestingly, the brand new Mozilla Monitor Plus. This is a service they very recently announced. It's paid. It's like $14 a month if you pay monthly. And it's meant to remove your data from data brokers after it was illegally grabbed uh, or leaked from other services that you might use. And so this is a brand new service that is already losing people affected to it. Uh, they're also scaling back the workforce on Mozilla VPN, on Firefox Relay, and on other privacy-focused services. The general impression at Mozilla seems to be that these services don't really offer all that much that differentiates them from the competition, and so they're kind of struggling to grow. They're just not all that interesting compared to the plethora of options you already have everywhere. And Mozilla these days is not more trustworthy than a lot of providers for these services, so it's no surprise that they're just not hitting their targets on these. The Mozilla.social instance that was created for Mastodon will also see reduced investment. They still plan to keep it online. Uh, it's, I think it's accessible in early access or in beta for select people. Uh, but right now, yeah, they're just not going to focus all in on this. And so all of these cuts are meant to refocus Mozilla on Firefox, especially apparently on the mobile app where they feel they can grow the most. 
And, well, AI hasn't been abandoned as I thought. I, I reported last time that, yeah, they didn't really talk about AI at all in their announcement where they announced that Laura Chambers was the new CEO. Uh, but, yeah, an internal memo apparently told employees that Mozilla wants to bring what they call trustworthy AI into Firefox. And as a result, they merged their AI team with their content team and the pocket team. So it looks like they are going to move forward with their plan to have this kind of little local only AI assistant that you can feed various documents yourself or it can use your browsing history if you want to. And it's going to help you summarize what you read about a certain topic. So it's your own little local only AI assistant that doesn't report to a giant black box in the cloud why not if it's completely optional? So it's hard not to see the new CEO at work here, and it always sucks to see open source contributors and developers lose their jobs. I really do hope that they will find something that suits their skills and their needs quickly, and I hope they, they can like find another cool job that they like. I also hope that the focus on Firefox will pay off. It is what everyone wanted to see from Mozilla. It is what everyone has been clamoring for. People want Firefox to become a better browser than Chrome, which admittedly it isn't really right now, at least in the performance department. So this focus is what people want. If they have to add AI features to it, I at least hope they will look like what they announced previously, like this local-only helper for your own research. I hope they don't go all in into a giant cloud black box weird thing, which would be just chasing the latest trend, which has never worked for Mozilla. This is not what people want from that nonprofit. So time will tell. These are troubled times, definitely, for Mozilla, but I do hope uh, that this is the right decision to make in terms of refocusing on Firefox. Layoffs are just never fun, but if they can manage to make Firefox a really good browser on Android, on iOS, and on Linux, Windows, Mac, something that people actually want to use over Chrome, that would be really, really cool. Now, we're also getting very close to a Cosmic Desktop Alpha. And the Cosmic Desktop, if you don't know, is a brand new desktop environment being worked on by System76. Uh, they sell laptops and desktops with Linux pre-installed, but they also make PopOS, a very popular Ubuntu-based distro. And so this has been in development for about two years now, and they're reaching the state where they can actually give people an easy way to try it out before they actually release it uh, as a stable version. So they published a blog post on Valentine's Day, and they talked about their progress. They have now completed the screenshot tool that they needed for the desktop. It supports what you'd expect, capturing the whole screen, capturing a window, or capturing just an area of the screen. And they've also implemented window stacks for floating windows, meaning that you can grab a window by its title bar, drop it on a certain zone on another window, and then both floating windows will just be stacked with tabs, so you'll have tabs in the title bar, to switch from one to, a th to the other. It's basically like what you would find on a lot of tiling window managers, but for floating windows, and I think it's a really, really cool feature. They also finalized the design for all the on-screen display elements. When you increase the volume, the brightness, when you disable the touchpad, go into airplane mode, you get those little icons that appear in the middle of your screen. So they designed all of these. Uh, and they also plan to add a maximize and unmaximize animation in their window manager. They have finalized all the settings uh, related to the display and to the wallpaper. And now what they still have to focus on before the alpha 
is having good support for hybrid graphics. So for example, when you have a laptop with an integrated GPU and a dedicated Nvidia or AMD GPU, they want to give you the option to use that in hybrid mode where only the integrated GPU is used unless the app actually needs more power and then it moves on to the dedicated GPU. So they want to have a little applet that lets you switch to these modes, but also show you which apps use the dedicated GPU right now, and so you can shut them down if you want to save battery life. There are also a bunch of other improvement areas planned, including the terminal with split window mode. They want to bring a split mode as well for the text editor. They want to finish the tiling applet that they have that lets you turn on auto tiling. And they will interestingly also bring auto tiling on a per workspace setting. So you could have one virtual desktop with all floating windows and another virtual desktop with auto tiling, which is really, really cool because it really fits both use cases of people who want a tiling manager, but also don't really want the hassle of always having to use a tiling manager. I think it's the best of both world. They are also designing app and applet icons to start working for the file manager for Cosmic, which will apparently be its own thing. There were questions uh, on whether they would use something that already exists, like Nemo, or, or something used maybe by XFCE or by Mint, or if they were going to use the GNOME file manager or KDEs, and apparently no, they're just going to redevelop a file manager for themselves, which is interesting because it means that the core apps shipped with, uh, with Pop! OS and with the Cosmic desktop will all be cohesive, which is nice. So apparently Cosmic will be shipped in Pop! OS 24.04 based on Ubuntu 24.04 LTS. You should not expect this version of Pop! OS to land close to the release date of Ubuntu 24.04 because their alpha is planned for early March. And by the time uh, Ubuntu releases in April, they will probably not have had sufficient testing. So I would expect it maybe in August or September. Maybe that's probably something I would see. But still, that's pretty good progress. And honestly, the more I see about Cosmic, the more it looks like the awesome alternative I want. It's powerful, it's configurable, it's, it looks easy to use. It has plenty of tools that seem very modular. It has been designed from the ground up to use Wayland and to have the best performance on hybrid devices, which is what I use. It really does look like a very, very solid option. I will have to test it, obviously, once the alpha is released. But the fact that they are also focusing on making their own apps for the desktop is good because it means you won't have a disjointed interface and experience out of the box. So yeah, it still remains to be seen how they will handle apps that are not made through Cosmic specifically, like if you install a GTK app or a, K or a Qt app, a KDE app inside of Cosmic, do, will they just look like these desktops? Will they look like a GNOME app or a KDE app? Will they theme them? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to follow. So I hope we'll get to see the alpha in time for early March, and I'm very excited to give it a shot because it looks really, really cool. Now we're going to talk about the open web and censorship because this time the IT Ministry of India decided to issue an order to block ProtonMail in the whole country. Apparently 13 private schools received fake bomb threats that were hoaxes. There were no bombs, it was a bomb threat that had like no real thing to it. It's just a hoax. But it's still very scary, and I can understand why it would move people. It's a school. It's terrifying. Uh, but these threats were sent from Proton Mail. So apparently the only logical reaction uh, India could land on was to block Proton Mail and entirely in the country. 
The order hasn't been sent yet, but it's bound to happen soon. And it is for now unclear if only the web, the, the website for ProtonMail will be affected, or if they will also send uh, orders to Apple and Google to also block Proton's apps uh, in India in their respective app stores. Proton acknowledged that they received that notice for that potential block, and obviously they are just not amused by this at all. They're saying that it's completely misguided, completely inappropriate, because first it will not block anyone from sending bomb threats for, from another email address, so yeah, stupid, and also it won't even be useful if the people who send these threats are not located in India, because they will still have access to ProtonMail there. Now that block is apparently made possible by a relatively recent law that lets a committee decide to block anything they would like in the country for national security reasons. And that committee also kind of left uh, in the air the reason why they targeted ProtonMail that harshly. And apparently it's because they always have a problem getting information from ProtonMail. This committee can ask a provider to give them information about specific people, but Proton cannot really give that to them because emails are encrypted, so they cannot really give you personal info or the contents of the email. All they could give you if uh, India made a request to the Swiss government that may then made a request to Proton, all they could give India is maybe what the SMTP protocol lets out, which is the IP address and a few things like that. So it kind of looks more like an attempt from India to just capitalize on these fake bomb threats and remove a service that they could not spy on, couldn't monitor, and couldn't control. It looks more like that than a justified reaction. Because if you think about it, had the threats been sent from Gmail, would they have blocked Gmail in the entire country? I'm assuming that Gmail is as popular in India as it is in the rest of the world. Uh, I don't know, maybe another provider that is that is a national Indian provider uh, would have been targeted as well. Would they have blocked it in the entire country, blocking millions from accessing their own email address? They couldn't even migrate their data at all because the service would be blocked? Of course they wouldn't have done that. So it feels like they're specifically targeting ProtonMail because they cannot really monitor it or control it. And so congratulations to the absolute bastards sending fake bomb threats to schools. Like seriously, how crazy must you be to do that? How stupid do you have to be to be a fear-mongering idiot like that? I I'm sure this will not be repeated by other idiots uh, and result in other services being blocked. Sure, because humans are very clever. Now we're gonna go back to Firefox again, because we have some more news about the Servo project. If you don't know what Servo was, it was an experimental browser engine that was developed initially at Mozilla, and it was meant to replace Gecko, which is the current engine that Firefox is using. It's a very old engine, Gecko is very, very old, and has a bunch of problems in it, so they wanted to refactor it with a new thing. So they worked on Servo, it's developed using Rust, and now it's pretty much abandoned. Mozilla decided they just could not uh, 
spend the resources developing a brand new engine. They did grab a few parts from Servo to implement them into Firefox, but the main engine is still Gecko, it just has some elements of Servo. But it looks like at FOSDEM, uh, the project is being restarted. At FOSDEM it was mentioned that somebody is picking Servo back up. But it's not Mozilla, it's the team at Igalia that decided to reboot it. Igalia is a, a company that seems to work on a bunch of open source projects, either for themselves or as a contractor. So it's they, they've done very, very good things in the past. And that project now has an updated roadmap for 2024, which hopefully will result in the engine being adopted by some browsers in the future. It could be Firefox, maybe some currently Chromium-based browsers will be tired of Google's control over the Blink engine and will decide to move to that. Maybe we'll finally land on solid, good working browsers that ship uh, with our desktop environments. Like for example, Epiphany might move away from their terrible implementation of WebKit that doesn't really work and is super slow to something that actually works. Who knows? It could be a very interesting thing, especially if Servo is way more portable than Gecko, because apparently a major problem of Gecko is uh, you can fork Firefox to use Gecko, but trying to just use Gecko inside of another browser seems to be a complete nightmare. So it might not result in anything, but it is always good to see more browser engine diversity. So I hope this Servo engine can be used either to refresh Firefox in the future and make it more competitive with Chrome, with Edge, and all the other Chrome in disguise browsers that we have out there, uh, like Brave, Opera, Vivaldi, and all the like. Or maybe it's going to become like the default engine for Linux distros. It would be cool as well, but I do hope it results in something. And still on Firefox, the renewed focus on the app seems to already uh, bear dividends because there's a new feature in the works, namely tab previews. Right now on Firefox, if you hover your mouse cursor over a tab, you will just see a small little tooltip and that's it. Uh, with a brand new version of that feature though, you will now get a full preview of the web page that is loaded into this tab plus the URL and the title, which is going to be very useful if you have plenty of open tabs or plenty of pages from the same website, or even for pinned tabs, uh, which generally just show up as a five icon. So you can already enable this new feature in the beta of version 123 of Firefox, and I would expect that feature to land in version 124 after they had sufficient time for testing. So it's a very small thing, it's a small feature, but I do hope it's the sign of a renewed focus on making Firefox a better browser instead of trying to cram every single browser-adjacent feature in there. We'll have to wait and see, but it's cool to see the browser getting new stuff instead of just optional config options like what they usually do these days. And still on the topic of browsers, it looks like the Chromium project will integrate the web monetization API in the browser base. And so it will make its way into Chrome 127 in July. So if you don't know, web monetization is an API that lets websites declare that they accept micropayments from their audience. And the people using the web browser that supports this API can just say, I like this website, I want to contribute the amount of money that I decide on this frequency to this website. So for example, I could say I'm enabling web monetization on my own website if I ever decided to post more than one or two articles a year. Uh, and when you visit it, you could say, hey, I really like this website. So I'm gonna give a micropayment. Every time I visit it, I'm gonna pay one cent. 
and then every time you visit my website or you read a page or you watch a video, you automatically transfer one cent from your wallet to mine. And it's actual real money. It's not cryptocurrency crap. It's real money that is usable, doesn't lose value insanely fast. It does lose value because inflation, but it doesn't lose value as fast as crypto, at least it doesn't fluctuate as much. Now, obviously, this is all voluntary. It's the user who decides which website get what, the amount. A website cannot say, I don't accept payments under this specific thing. Uh, like, I, I couldn't say, I don't accept payments under $10. Like, if the user wants to give a fraction of a cent, they could do that. It's not up to the website to set a minimum. Users decide the frequency, whether it's on a visit base or just every week, every month, every year, whatever. They decide on the websites they want to support. And I think it's a very, very cool and interesting idea. And if it's widely adopted by all major browsers, which could be the case, because if it's in Chromium, it's in basically 90% of the world's browsers. Like 90% of the browser market share is occupied by Chromium-based browsers. If it's not completely buried or ignored in the settings, it really does have the potential to make ads less prevalent on various websites and also to let people creating content be rewarded for their work without having to paywall entire parts of their websites. So we'll have to see how things go, if this thing is adopted or not, if they have good interfaces to let people work with that. But as a creator, at least, it is pretty exciting to see something like this land in a major browser. It's sort of similar to the Brave Attention tokens that you could use, except it's not crypto-based, so it's just inherently better. Now let's talk about Ubuntu, because they are making some moves towards their desktop. First, they will develop, well, they started already on developing a brand new app for the Ubuntu desktop, and it's called the Desktop Security Center. So as with all Ubuntu apps, it's developed using Flutter, it's the toolkit they use for virtually everything that they add onto Ubuntu these days, and it will basically expose a bunch of security-related settings that were previously either spread across many different tools and setting pages, or they were maybe just command line only. So the app will let you, for example, attach a new device to your Ubuntu Pro subscription. It will let you turn on kernel live patching. It will let you manage system permissions for applications packaged as snaps. You will also be able to access encryption-related options uh, for their future TPM-backed disk encryption. You can, for example, uh, get your encryption recovery keys from there. You'll be able to manage the firewall and the ports in there and turn on stealth modes and a few other things. So this tool is currently in very early states of development. A bunch of, play of pages are just placeholders. You can still install it to try it out, but it's very early days and it's probably just not going to do anything apart from handling Ubuntu Pro right now. But it's interesting because it really does look like Ubuntu is trying to regain the control over the desktop experience and adding things specific to them on top of GNOME, much like virtually every other major distro has been doing, like, for example, if you take OpenSUSE, they ship, like, the, the Yast control center, which is super powerful. Ubuntu was basically just resting on their laurels. Uh, they, they focused on snaps, but they didn't really bring any anything additional. So why would you use Ubuntu instead of another distro if you weren't especially into snaps? There was basically no real reason. 
Now with these kind of tools and a solid infrastructure behind it, I think it's gonna be cool. It's a reminder of the old days where Ubuntu was the best desktop distro period. There was no debate about this, nothing even came close, and they pushed things forward. Now they're not pushing things forward, but at least they're differentiating themselves uh, with new tools and apps, and that's cool. And this also goes to their installer. Apparently in Ubuntu 24.04, the Ubuntu installer will get a nice big revamp. Uh, first, this installer wasn't considered very good by OEMs uh, that Ubuntu work with uh, to implement Ubuntu as a pre-installed option on their devices. It wasn't really focused on provisioning, it was harder to handle multiple installs on multiple devices with their installer, it wasn't possible to let the user set up their account after the install is already done, which is what OEMs like to do. So they want to touch up on that installer. So in 24.04, it will not fix all of these issues, but it will get a visual refresh first. So you'll get, for example, access to the accessibility options right after you select your language, and every option you pick in there will be kept into your session. The keyboard layout selection also has been revamped and looks nicer. The internet connection phase has also been like made way prettier. The install options where you pick between the full install or the minimal install are also much nicer now. Basically every page of the installer has the same good design with a visual or icon on the left and the options and settings on the right. It looks much more legible, much more engaging and Basically, it looks fresher and newer, which is an important thing uh, for an installer. All the other steps of the installer also have updated designs, but these haven't been implemented yet. Uh, things like enabling encryption or creating an account or partitioning, they will all conform to the same visual language, which is nice. And if you're thinking, no one cares, it's just the installer, you're only going to see it once and never again, you're wrong. It's actually a very important step. It's the first thing a user will see of your distribution. And the installation of the distro is the scariest step for a lot of people. A lot of people have never installed an operating system in their lives, whether it's on their computer, their phone, or whatever. They don't know how it works, they're scared it will break their devices or break things or they will lose data. So if your installer is very legible, very clear, nice looking and engaging, it's very reassuring and it means the user has a higher chance of actually completing the install. If you look at Debian's installer or even OpenSUSE installer, they look so old and so complex that I doubt anyone who's starting with these will actually go through without looking it up online and trying to reassure themselves. With Ubuntu, you kind of feel very guided. It's just as good as the Windows installer. Better even, because you have less crazy privacy invasive steps. So it is super important to have a good installer, and I think it's good that Ubuntu is focusing on that. Now we also have some good news for any Linux user who depends on CUDA, but would prefer moving away from NVIDIA GPUs. Because CUDA is a decidedly NVIDIA-only stack. It's something that is used in a bunch of professional apps for NVIDIA GPUs. So if you need CUDA for any application, like for example DaVinci Resolve, then you need an NVIDIA GPU right now. But it turns out, AMD has been quietly funding an open source implementation of CUDA that runs on AMD GPUs, thanks to ROCM, that's already a bunch of libraries that do the same thing as CUDA, but with HIP or OpenCL, they are different APIs that have the same goal as CUDA, but are more open and work on any platform. Now, it's all a bit of a weird story. 
The project started as something called ZL UDA or ZLUDA. It was an initiative from one single individual who wanted to bring CUDA to Intel platforms. After a while, they just stopped working on it, but AMD then hired them to keep the project going. And so the developer kept at it until AMD also decided to drop the project and to stop funding it. But the developer had made a specific clause in their contract when working for AMD, which meant that if the project was cancelled, he would get the rights to the source code and he would be allowed to open source it, which he has done now, meaning that we now have an open source CUDA implementation for AMD GPUs and licensed under two different licenses. You can use it with the Apache 2.0 or the MIT license. And so if your AMD GPU supports ROCM and you can install that on your distro, you can also now get ZLUDA, which means you can use CUDA on AMD GPUs. And apparently performance is really solid. It beats OpenCL in almost every benchmark for Onyx RAM, sometimes up to 175% of the OpenCL performance. Now, if you compare it to CUDA running on an NVIDIA GPU, the new solution for AMD isn't as solid, but it is close enough that it might make it worth it for a lot of people to just go with an AMD GPU that is better supported on Linux, install ROCM and Zluda, and get access to your CUDA apps. Admittedly, maybe some applications will not support this new implementation, but if it's done well, there's no reason. I am really interested to see how this thing progresses. It would be really cool to try it out with DaVinci Resolve on an AMD GPU, because for now, you can only run DaVinci Resolve on an NVIDIA GPU. On Intel, on Linux, it doesn't work. On AMD, you have to install the AMD Pro drivers, which have terrible performance, and you have to run DaVinci Resolve using OpenCL, and the performance is just not good compared to using it with CUDA. But if I could use it with an AMD GPU, keeping the open source drivers, installing the open source version of ROCM, and adding Zluda, I could run DaVinci Resolve on any AMD GPU I want, meaning I could just move away from an NVIDIA GPU. That would be very, very cool. So yeah, I'm very interested at how this thing will turn out. I hope work continues on it because it looks very, very cool. Now, last week, I already reported that Apple was disabling support for progressive web apps on iOS in the EU. And now they have confirmed that, yes, it is absolutely intentional. Uh, since Apple now has to support third-party browser engines, and progressive web apps always opened using Safari itself previously, no matter if you had selected Firefox or Chrome or whatever else as your default browser on iOS, they just used Safari as the default. You couldn't really see it because there was no graphical user interface on top of the progressive web app, but they never implemented any infrastructure in there to let people use another browser to open PWAs. And so Apple just doesn't have that infrastructure in place at all. And since they don't really have long before they have to ship all the changes to conform with the new regulation in the EU, they decided to just stop supporting PWAs period. It's not for now, it's no more support. They will not fix that PWA support in the EU. Because all the changes that they would have to do would include making sure a progressive web app doesn't have access to things it shouldn't have. So basically plugging it in with the permission system of iOS. And Apple is saying that they cannot do that for third-party browsers yet or at all, which is probably completely untrue because I am very sure that third-party browser engines coming to iOS will also have to abide with all the permission system and all the APIs iOS has. 
And Apple also hints at the fact that very few people use PWS, which is true. The most general population just doesn't care about that. They want a native app. And so Apple doesn't want to spend any time fixing this. And Apple is also trying to spin this as regulation gone crazy, look at the side effects, it's just breaking a feature for no reason. But that's just not true. This is a direct result of Apple's focus on forcing people to use Safari for everything. They wanted to control progressive web apps because they did not want people to use those. They wanted people to use native apps on which they actually make money. PWAs don't make any money for Apple, so they did not want to support those. So they just locked those PWAs to Safari itself. They decided Safari would not support all the features PWAs need, so the experience would always be worse than something running as a native app. And so they never invested any time and effort in developing an infrastructure for that. And now that they have to, they just decided to completely drop the feature because, yeah, they, they just still don't want people to use PWAs. They want people to use native apps that make money for them. So it's not the EU's fault. It's not regulation gone crazy. It's Apple's decision to drop a feature and using the Digital Markets Act as a scapegoat. But yeah, who could have guessed, right? It's, it's Apple. They always have your best interest in mind. It's not always about the money. Okay, and now we're going to finish this episode with the gaming news. Uh, so first we have updates on FEX. That's the emulator that lets you run x86 software on ARM devices on Linux. And this thing got a new update which should bring much better performance, up to 16%. So they applied fixes specifically to better support Proton, meaning that they focused on making gaming on ARM devices much better. They showed, for example, Monster Hunter World running very, very well, although they didn't say on which device and on which graphical settings. And they also now support the Linux kernel 6.6, .6, or at least they can let the x86 app know that you're using the Linux kernel 6.6 .6 on an ARM device, so you can take advantage of the latest kernel features. They also identified a memory leak that they did not have time to fix yet on processes that run for a long time, including Steam or a video game, so it is not perfect yet, but it is very cool to see projects like this improve. Because at some point, ARM might become a lot more prevalent for consumers than what ARM is right now. We already have Apple going all in on this. We have a few examples in the Linux community, like the Pinebook Pro, but it's pretty anecdotal. We have Microsoft focusing on ARM CPUs for some of their Surface line. So it might, in the end, happen. We might have ARM devices like being the mass market devices that people will use. Maybe it will be Risk Five. maybe it will be ARM, but at least if it's ARM, we already have a solution to keep running all of our pre-existing apps on those devices with decent performance. So that's good. It would also mean that you could use Azahi Linux more confidently on, on an Apple laptop and even like play some games uh, using FEX, at least once the Vulkan drivers for Azahi are written. And speaking of those drivers, the insanely talented developers for Azahi have passed yet another milestone. Their support for OpenGL and OpenGL ES is now newer and better than what Apple themselves offer in macOS. Because in macOS, they only support OpenGL up to version 4.1, which is a 14 years old version, but the Azaki drivers that have been developed by a few individuals now conform to version 4.6 of OpenGL and version 3.2 for OpenGL ES, which is the latest that you can support. 
support. Apparently it was not easy because the M1 platform just doesn't have the actual hardware features that are needed to get that support. So they had to implement a bunch of tricks and workarounds to make the whole feature set of these recent OpenGL versions work on that hardware. But what's more important is that it means the team is now free to focus on Vulkan support, which is much more important on Linux, because if you want to run anything on Linux, any game, you're gonna need to have a fully Vulkan compliant driver. And so they didn't give any specifics on how that work is moving along. They said, I quote, they are well on the road to supporting it, end quote. Uh, and they also talked about M3 support. Apparently that's not coming soon. It will take at least six months to get basic support for the platform. But in the meantime, M1 and M2 are almost completely supported. Apart from Thunderbolt, uh, Touch ID, the internal mic, or using an external display over USB-C. Those are still important use cases, but it means that if you're using a basic Mac Mini, you don't really care, maybe apart from the Thunderbolt, but you still have solid USB speed through USB-C, and you can use the HDMI ports to power an external display. So it is actually pretty freaking usable, even on a laptop. That's really, really solid work. And to me, it's insane that a group of volunteers without any help from Apple or any documentation managed to accomplish all of this. This is just fantastic work. And to finish on this graphics drivers topic, developers are now proposing to turn on using the NVIDIA GSP for GPU system processor by default on the Nuvo drivers for more GPUs. For now, this new thing is only turned on for RTX 40 series GPUs, but you could turn it on for all RTX series GPUs. And if you don't know, the, the support for GSP in the Nuvo drivers is what lets the GPU be reclocked after boot. If you don't have that support, you're running your GPU throughout your entire session at the same clock speeds it has when the computer boots. And those are very low clock speeds, meaning that you will never get any kind of performance out of your very pricey GPU. So you need that support on NVIDIA GPUs if you use the Nuvo drivers to have semi-acceptable performance and a semi-acceptable experience. And also if you want to use the NVK driver, the Vulkan driver that is open source for NVIDIA, you do need that, uh, that GSP firmware as well. So turning that on for all RTX GPUs would mean a much better experience for a lot of people. Older architectures like the 10 series or older will just not be able to use it because it's not meant for it and some of them don't even need it. But at least for RTX users, it would be a much better experience if they stick to the open source drivers. Now, there's a patch that has been submitted to configure that behavior when you're building the Linux kernels. So distributions can decide which path they want to use. They can use the newer GSP enabled path, which will perform much, much better. It will actually let you use your GPU and the NVK drivers, but it is less tested. Or they can go with the older path that provides absolutely dog shit performance, but is very stable. So personally, I cannot wait to try that new stack, Nuvo plus NVK on my NVIDIA GPU. Open source NVIDIA is coming. Uh, it's probably going to happen before the end of the year for most people. And I think it's super, super exciting. And I cannot wait to give it a shot to see if it's worth it or if it still needs a bit of time in the oven before it can be fully used as a daily drive. 
So, this will conclude this episode of the show. As always, if you need more details about any of these topics, you have all the links in the show notes. If you want to support this podcast to keep it going, you can also take a look at all the links in the show notes. And for just $1 per month, uh, if you become a Patreon member or YouTube member, you can get a daily version of this show from Monday to Friday. So, check out the links in the show notes to help support. In the meantime, thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one next week. Bye!